We'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. Thanks, Mel. Third to fifth graders, it is our joy and our honor and our privilege to have you guys join us this morning. Thank you so much for being here, even though you didn't have a choice in the matter. We're glad that you're here with us. We know for some of you this is kind of new and maybe a little strange for you, but I want to encourage you to listen closely this morning. Consider all the stuff that we talk about today. You may not understand everything that we talk about, and that's okay. See if you can find the one or two things that, that really matter in what we talk about today, that seem really important, and then bug your parents on the way home to see if you got it right, okay? If you like drawing, there are all kinds of things that you could draw from, and, uh, draw, images that you could draw that will be uh, dealt with in the text today. If you, draw, if you do draw a picture of something that you hear today, I'd love to see your masterpiece, so bring it up afterwards. Moms and dads, if you'd like to draw too, you can bring yours up as well. In 1939, the world was introduced to a black and white Dorothy Gale, and she would remain in dull display until about 18 minutes into a film that has transcended time. The Wizard of Oz begins and ends in black and white. But there's this moment, 18 minutes into the film, that changes everything. Imagine being in the theater for the first time 
for the first showing of that movie and the shock that must have filtered through the audience when Dorothy opened that front door to her home and color broke through that dismal facade to light up the movie landscape with all the lush colors and the yellow brick of the land of Oz. The drab black and white images in the first few minutes of the movie only served to highlight the radiant, colorful beauty of Oz. Now, was the black and white adequate enough for storytelling? In a sense, yes, but it was not able to carry the full weight of the glory of the land of Oz, to communicate the grandeur of the Emerald City. And of course, there never could have been a horse of a different color, right? So I want us to think of our text today as the front door of Dorothy's house, opening up into the vibrant land of Oz. A once dismal landscape suddenly bursts with color. In a moment's time, the storytelling is richer and fuller and brighter. But before we get to that metaphorical door, let's survey the black and white landscape of this text for just a moment, especially the opening scene, which has a whole lot of references to the law. Now, probably everyone in here is somewhat familiar with God's most basic law, the Ten Commandments. Even non-Christians believe that most of the Ten Commandments are pretty good ideas. It's kind of like morality 101. They're not complex, these laws, and yet none of us can fully and perfectly pass the test. And so God goes, okay, I've got a plan. I've got a way to fix your problem that you can't pass this test. So I'm going to institute a sacrificial system because I'm perfectly just and I cannot just let your sin go unpunished. So what God did is decree a whole set of laws. And these laws require sacrifices to be paid for sin because sin has a penalty and must be paid for So our text sort of zeroes in on that part of the law, the sacrificial system that God set up. And it describes this season of history for these uh, thousands of years, thousands of years ago. It describes that period of history as the age of shadows. You can see it there in verse 1. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come. The age of shadows was the time of the law. And number one this morning, the age of shadows was inadequate. The age of shadows was inadequate. Now shadows, they can have different connotations to different people. Usually they're dark connotations, right? But they don't have to be. For instance, I think back to my years in elementary school. I can still see it in my mind's eye, just as my mind is wandering away from the subject of my teacher's droning voice. I can see a shadow come up behind me. Now, here's the thing about my elementary school days. More often than not, that shadow meant that my dad was in the room. You see, my dad was the principal of my school for all of my growing up years. So his shadow, and it's a big one, both metaphorically and physically, he's six foot five, his shadow would often creep up in the back of the classroom as he walked the halls and classrooms to observe the teachers and the students. But more often than not, his shadow was actually something pleasant for me. It was a good thing. Knowing the man in charge gave me some perks that I was pretty glad to have. But for the other kids in the room who didn't have the luxury of calling calling the owner of that hulking shadow dad, it was less than pleasant for them. But there's there's a pleasant shadow in our text today that should invoke the warm feelings of family, 
of wonder and awe that you get to be a part of something beautiful. If you know what's casting the shadow, you'd realize that you get some pretty amazing perks because it's a shadow of something good. Look at verse 1 there. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So we have to ask ourselves here, what object or what person is creating the shadow of the law? Well, the specific law in view here in Hebrews 10 is in reference to the sacrificial system. We've already talked a little bit about that. I think maybe highlighting one aspect of the sacrificial system could be helpful for us this morning in making sense of this shadow. So if you're unfamiliar a little bit with the Jewish or the Christian faith, let me give you some quick cliffs notes here. The ancient Hebrew calendar was full of holidays. You might call them holy days. That's the source of the word holidays. Days that were set apart for worship and for renewal. And there were certain times when God's people would come into the tabernacle. That's the place of worship. And this is where they approached God to worship him and to have his wrath appeased. Some of you might be thinking, wait, wrath? Like, what, what does wrath have to do with God? Again, if you're new to Christianity, I understand how this kind of idea about God, his wrath, could sound initially oppressive, even like off-putting. A vision of God who is ushy-gushy or only lovey-dovey may initially sound more compelling to you this morning. But I think if you just consider for a moment this aspect of God's character, that he sometimes demonstrates wrath, I think if you consider it, this view of God will become not only palatable, but even desirable. None of us in here like unfair judges. It's not right when someone we believe is guilty gets off for free. If they're guilty, then they should pay whatever price the law requires. How incensed would we be if a murdering, thieving, raping racist was let free by a judge just because they were pals in high school? We would excoriate a judge like that, and rightly so. Their job is to put on the blinders of justice and to administer it without partiality. It's the same with God. He is inflexibly just because he is inexhaustibly good. Because we not, we're not God, though, we often underestimate how offensive our sin is to him. We worry more about being stopped by a cop for speeding than we do about the seriousness of our sin. But sin is infinitely serious. And God's anger at sin is the biggest problem in any person's life, whether or not they know it. God's anger at sin is the biggest problem in any person's life, whether or not they know it. And so the Israelites, back to the tabernacle here, they would come to the tabernacle to appease God's wrath for all the sins that they'd committed since the last time. It was a real problem. But God had a real solution. And the tabernacle was this situation where the people would come in and talk to the priests and they'd say, listen, I've sinned against God in this way. And then the priest would say, yep, now let's go take care of that in the way that God says to take care of it. Let's kill an animal. And that's what the cycle was. That's the cycle that they were stuck in. Sin, kill. Sin, kill. Sin, kill. God's inflexible justice required a blood payment. Well, there was this one particular day in their holiday calendar. They celebrated it. It was called the Day of Atonement. It happened once a year. 
And as part of the sacrifice, the priest would take two goats with him. He'd kill one to satisfy the wrath of God. Then he would place his hands on the other goat and confess the sins of the people. This symbolized the transfer of the sins from the people to the goat. Then he would send that goat off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Again, representing that the sins of the people have been taken away, never to be seen again. So if the law was a shadow, can you think of who or what might be casting that particular shadow from the New Testament? But there was something wrong with these shadows, these sacrifices. They were inadequate. If you look at verse 1 again, the same sacrifices were offered year after year without ceasing, but they couldn't do what the people needed. And what did they need? What did they need to draw near to God? What do we need to be in communion with our Creator? Two things. Verse 4, you can see it, sinlessness, and then verse 1, perfection. These sacrifices couldn't fix this in any kind of permanent way. They were only temporary fixes. These sacrifices couldn't fully resolve these people of their guilt and shame. It was impossible. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so here the author is backing away and he's saying, hey, listen, it's not working. You keep coming in. You keep confessing your junk to the priest. The priests continually tell you to knock it off. They keep killing animals because you keep sinning. And this is, he was saying this because if they wanted the sacrifices to stop, the people had to be perfect. And so what happened was, and now lock in here because this happens as much today as it did back then. This is really important for all of us to glean. What happened was that the people got stuck in a ritualistic cycle of religion that did not set them free from shame and sin and guilt. They were stuck. They were doomed to week after week, month after month, year after year, doing the same religious things that brought about the same less than perfect results. I mean, the very consistency and the continuity of the sacrifices is a witness to their ineffectiveness. The very fact that they needed to repeat these sacrifices demonstrated very clearly that the cleansing they wanted and the cleansing they needed was not being affected in any kind of permanent way. It's because the age of shadows was inadequate. People were able to get right with God, sure, but their rightness with him was not permanent, and pursuing that rightness with him was exhausting. It was repetitive. It was bloody. It was costly. I mean, these animals weren't free. So what really was the age of shadows? The shadow is the law. So if you can, imagine your Bible laid open. Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right. If you're new to the Christian Bible, the Bible is basically split up into two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. The first part, that's everything before and then leading up to Jesus. And the second part, the New Testament, that's Jesus' biography and all the stuff that happened after Jesus lived here on the earth. So imagine your Bible folded open and the, metaphor, the metaphorical sunshine of God's glory shining out over the New Testament. And verse 1 calls this, these, these objects in the New Testament, these people in the New Testament, it calls it the true form of these realities. Or it's like the substance that creates the shadow. Imagine what kinds of shadows Jesus' gospel might create in the Old Testament if the sun was shining out over the New Testament. The shadow 
is the preliminary. It's kind of like the outline that an artist makes before he gets to his colors and before the image becomes a finished portrait. The author of Hebrews is saying that the law is no more than the preliminary sketch. It shows the shape of things to come, but the solid reality is not there yet. But that all changes in verse 5. Number two this morning, the substance of the shadow is all sufficient. The age of shadows was inadequate, but the substance of the shadow is all sufficient. Verse 5 starts with this word here, consequently. Or you could say, for this reason. It is because of this Christ came, is what the author is saying. And so in verse 5, we're cracking open that door with Dorothy. And as we do, the black and white, sometimes difficult to decipher words of the Old Testament law are about to be filled in with beautiful living color. Some of you have probably wondered what to even do with the Old Testament. What do I do with this? Some of you have wondered if it's a necessary part of your Bible. It seems confusing sometimes and complex and convoluted. But it is necessary. We cannot do away with the Old Testament. You know when you go to an IHOP and they have those kids' menus with the color by number section on them? It may look something like this. I know this is a long way away. But a bunch of lines and it's hard to tell what's going on, right? To not have the Old Testament is like the difference between the beginning and end of your meal at IHOP. At the beginning, you're opening up the crayons, beginning to follow the color codes. But after the pancakes have been eaten and the activities on the menu exhausted, eventually the pattern becomes less obscure and the image emerges. Can anybody see what this image is from there? How about this? Thanks to Eden for doing this for me this morning. Can you tell? Somebody say it. Unicorn, yeah, unicorns are making a comeback right now. Can I get an amen on that? Our house is full of them. But this is like the Old Testament, and this is like the New Testament. It's all crystallizing and becoming clear. Eden, great job, wherever you are. Thank you for that. So the Old Testament is like the shapes in the New Testament filled in, that need filling in with, with living color. Color by number is exactly what's happening here in our text today. What was once obscure and shadowy is now becoming clear. Why all the sacrifices? Why all the blood? Why all the smoked meat? Because God was pointing ahead to this moment in history when the final sacrifice would appear. So here in verse 4, we find God, say, God saying, I don't want your bull. I don't need your goat. They won't ultimately get you anywhere or do anything for you. But some of us in here still think we've got stuff to offer God. Like you've got things that he needs. Money, personality, gifting. Can I encourage you this morning to not live in a modernized age of shadows where you try to creatively compel God to love you for what you do. Because hear this, where the age of shadows showed its inadequacy, Jesus demonstrates his all-sufficiency. So this is why at Trinity, you won't get a steady diet of do, do, do. Though there are certainly imperatives in the scriptures that we're not going to shy away from. But we're, gonna pre we're not going to preach tabernacle here. We're going to preach gospel. 
The tabernacle says, do, 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 but the gospel shouts louder, done, done, done. The favor's already been earned. God's imperatives for our lives flow out of his gospel provision for our lives. To reverse this order is deadly. We don't obey to grab his attention and say, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. Please love me. No, we obey because he has already looked on us with favor because of what another one has done. But if you're like me, you're tempted to reverse this. And I'm telling you right now, it will suck the life right out of you. We tend to base our justification on our sanctification, and instead our sanctification ought to be based on our justification. God doesn't want your bull or need your goats. His only son has given up his life for you. So in the age of shadows, perfection wasn't offered and it wasn't possible. Verse 1 says that the law could never make you perfect. But look what Jesus offers in verses 10 and 14. In verse 10, we see that by Jesus' sacrifice, we will have been sanctified. That word sanctified there means made holy, which is to say made like God, perfect. Then look further in verse 14. Here again we find Jesus able to do what the law could never do, make us perfect before God, and he sanctifies us. So in my Bible, I don't know if you're like a line drawer or an underliner, but I drew a line from that word perfect in verse 1 down to sanctified in verse 10 and then to perfected and sanctified in verse 14. On one side of Jesus, perfection is impossible. But on this side of Jesus, you can be made right with your maker forever. You can enjoy unhindered, warm fellowship with the one who made you, who spoke you into existence. That is a sweet, sweet, underrated privilege. How is this? Because Jesus was the one time, forever, perfect sacrifice. I'm not sure why, but I've got like perfect vision. God must have taken all the cells that make hair in your body and put them in my eye sockets or something. I don't know. But some of you in here have really bad eyesight. You've had contacts or glasses for years. But I bet there are a few of you in here who got sick of those spectacles or those contacts and that contact solution and putting them in and taking them out day after day, month after month, and you said, forget it. I'm going to fork out the cash and I'm going to get some LASIK surgery done. You want that one-time solution for an ongoing eyesight problem. LASIK is a permanent solution for bad eyesight. The law was like the contact wearers in here. It was a temporary fix, but it was not ultimate. But Jesus, he's like you LASIK people in here. Jesus is a permanent solution for sinful souls. So listen to this. This is awesome, and I want, I want us to see this together, the contrast in verses 11 to 14. These verses pit the temporary against the forever. Contacts versus LASIK. The great difference between what Jesus did and what the priest did in the Old Testament is summed up in verses 11 and 12. Look at it. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So quickly notice here these contrasts. This is cool. Many priests 
versus Christ as our one great high priest. Many sacrifices versus one sacrifice of himself. Repeated offerings versus a one-time offering for all time. And here's the best one, I think. And maybe you missed it. Notice that in verse 11, every priest stands daily. But when Christ had made his single sacrifice in verse 12, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. So for the priests serving in the tabernacle, there was no sitting on the job. Consider for a moment all the furniture in the tabernacle. There was an altar. There was this large basin for washing. There was these gigantic curtains. There was a table, an ark, lampstand. But do you know what the tabernacle didn't have? It had no chairs. And the reason it had no chairs was because the work was never done. The priest stood daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. No wonder there were no chairs in the tabernacle. Because no matter how many offerings the people brought, they could never have the guilt, fear, and shame removed permanently. And so he's saying here, priests would always offer these sacrifices. But they were never able to sit down because their work was partial, not complete, lacking, never finished. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. In his death, Jesus completed what no other priest in history could ever have completed. He satisfied the Father's demands by suffering for sins in my place. We sing it here, in my place condemned he stood. But then after he died, he rose. And after he rose, he ascended. And then he sat down. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offered himself as a single sacrifice for sins for all time. And after his sacrifice was offered and accepted, he did what no other priest could do. He pulled up a chair and he sat down. And Jesus taking a seat here means at least three things. First, it means that the work is done. He does not stand daily to offer sacrifices for sin. Second, it means that God is satisfied with the sacrifice. God honored Jesus after he made the sacrifice with a seat at his right hand to show that he was fully satisfied with the debt that Jesus had paid. By the way, this should greatly encourage you today. If you're in Christ, your sins are fully dealt with. This reality especially refreshed me this week as I applied this truth to my own broken heart. I often find myself wallowing in my own sin. I tend to obsess over the broken havoc that I wreak on Miriam or my girls, anger or impatience or raised voice or whatever. It somehow feels like penance to feel bad about being bad. Maybe you're the same way. But in those moments, I'm actively trying to pay a debt that has already been paid. I'm literally pulling Jesus out of his sitting position and saying, get up! Your job's not done yet. That's insulting to the finality of Jesus' sacrifice. He sat down. It's done. You don't have to keep paying. He completed it. His work is completely done. It's beautiful. Look, just because Dorothy ends up leaving the colorful land of Oz and going back into the drab black and white of Kansas 
doesn't mean that we have to. Don't go back to the age of shadows. Don't pay for something that's already been paid for. When you and I are tempted to despair over our own sinful shortcomings and brokenness, we must stop and look up and see him there who made an end to all our sin. He made an end to it completely. Consider that your payment is done. Jesus is not sitting. Jesus is sitting because he has already paid for our sin, and we need not pay for sins that he already paid for. Acknowledge the sin. It's real. Hate the sin. Confess the sin. Then rejoice in the payment for sin, and then move on. It's been paid for. The work is done. God is satisfied. And third, verse 12 means that Christ, together with his Father, is the sovereign ruler over his enemies. They will be defeated. That's what verse 13 stresses there. He says, Jesus is waiting from that time onward until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So what he's saying here is that Jesus didn't only sit down. After he sat, he began to prop his feet up on the backs of his enemies and on the backs of ours. In other words, everything Christ died to accomplish will be completely accomplished. No enemy can hinder Jesus' cross work. The atonement was complete. The Father's just wrath completely satisfied. And all of the enemies of God will completely crumble before the reigning Christ of heaven. All of them. What Jesus completes is completely done. That's our big idea. It kind of sums up this text for us this morning. What Jesus completes is completely done. So when it comes to your justification, there's nothing left undone. Well, this is great. But what does this have to do with being a church that's centered on the gospel? How does this text help us understand our identity, our corporate identity as a church? Well, it's a good question. I mentioned earlier that we're not going to preach tabernacle here. We're going to preach gospel, and here's what I mean. One author says that there are two ways to do farming. He says there's the American way and the Middle Eastern way to do farming. The American way says, the way I know which cows are mine and which cows are yours is by looking at the fence and seeing which cows are on my side and which cows are on your side. That's the American way of farming. And then the other is the Middle Eastern way. They sink a well right in the middle of the property. That way, the animals never go very far because they need access to that water. His point was that the problem of many of our churches today is that we spend all of our time on fence maintenance. Now, fences are necessary, don't get me wrong, but if we spend all of our time on fence maintenance, on the boundaries, and never actually sink a well, we're going to have a whole bunch of thirsty sheep. So here at Trinity, we want to sink the life-giving well of the gospel firmly in our midst so we always know where to come for the eternal life-giving water. The gospel is this magnetic, life-giving center of this book, of hopefully this church and hopefully for you personally. If it's been a while since you've drunk from the well, can I encourage you? Open your Bible tonight, tomorrow morning. Read the Gospel of John, perhaps. We're going to return to that in just a few weeks and be in it for a while. Drink deeply until your soul is satisfied with your maker. You know, I'm not sure this ever happened, 
It probably did, but do you know what would have been cool? If that shadow in my elementary school classroom would have culminated in a touch. And that touch would have culminated in a request to come with me. My dad would call me with him and I'd pick up my stuff, leave my classmates to endure the lecture while I hop in the car with him to go get my driver's license or an ice cream or whatever. That would have been a shadow that promised good. I wonder if for some of you in here this morning, you've only ever seen a shadow of the gospel. Perhaps you've never actually witnessed the substance of the gospel. Perhaps you've never come to Jesus and said, Jesus, save me, rescue me, help me. If that's you, we want you to know that Jesus is so willing to sink a well of life-giving water in your soul. We'd love to chat with you about that. For others of you, maybe the Spirit is tapping on your shoulder this morning and saying, come with me. Come back to the gospel. Remember what is the most refreshing thing in the universe. Nothing satisfies like it. The world can't. You keep trying day after day, year after year, and you keep coming up empty and dry. This morning, come back to the gospel and drink deeply. This book and hopefully this church are centered on the gospel its implications, and even its shadows in the Old Testament. So as you walk into your work week or your week at home with your kids or whatever it might be, can I implore all of us to watch for the well of Jesus in our lives or look for the shadows of the well. But by all means, center your life on the well of the gospel. That's what we're going to do here at Trinity. Trinity's identity is centered on the gospel, and I hope yours is too. You guys pray with me? Lord, our, our tendency is to try to sink our identity into what we've done instead of into what you have done. We want to be more known for what we have accomplished than what you have accomplished. Pray that you'd rebuke us for that spirit this morning, that we would know that we can never outshine your resume. Yours is the best, and help us embrace it and lean into it and depend on it. In Jesus' name, amen.